Hi everyone, it's Lou. I think you know what I'm going to say. Petition, petition, petition. For those who don't know about the petition, there's a change.org petition that is on the Facebook page, the public and private page. I'm tweeting it. It's, it's pretty much everywhere. So unless you've been living under a rock, um, you should know about it. And if you do, please share it. I know people are sharing it and getting behind this cause. And I really, really appreciate you. The most important thing is that we share it, that we tag our friends when we share it. You can tag them in the comments section or you can just tag them when you share it and ask them to share it as well. It just needs to get really, really wide reach to get those signatures. And when we have significant number of signatures, the goal I think for me is 10,000 because I feel like that's such a significant number that it will really make the Department of Education sit up and listen and think, holy dooly, people want this thing. They want collaborative proactive solutions to be embedded in New South Wales and eventually all of Australian education. So please share that petition. Thanks everyone. I would like to acknowledge that this podcast meeting is being held on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respect to Elders, both past, present and future, and to welcome you to this new episode for podcast Square Peg Round Hole. Welcome to Square Peg Round Hole, the podcast where we discuss diversity and how to embrace your neurodivergent kids at home, at school and in the workplace. It's Lou here. This is a long one, guys, um, so I'm going to make my introduction very short. I tried to edit it down, but actually I couldn't because everything that our guest today was saying, I just keep thinking of people I know out there who need to hear every word of it. So maybe you listen to it over a couple of sessions, I don't know. But um, yeah, it, it's just worth listening to every word of what Lisa has to say. So our guest is Lisa Bridal. She is from Community Resources Unit, or is it Community Resourcing Unit? CRU <laughs> in Queensland. Um, and she it, CRU, you'll hear about what they do, but basically they're very similar to Family Advocacy, which is my employer here in New South Wales. So, um, you know, Lisa was talking in a language that I have heard a lot when I'm at work as well. And that's why I've called this, this episode Value the Devalued because that is what Lisa is so passionate about, being the parent of a person who represents a community who are devalued in society. She understands the issues and that is what has kept her strong through her journey. So we talk about her early connections to inclusive education and how that helped her to form a vision when her son Sean was just a baby of what his future should be in that he should have a valued role in society and that should include attending his local school. She didn't want him to be othered. She didn't want him to be sent to a special school. So she really lived by that. She was challenged and she'll tell you more about this by a principal in high school who actually determined that um, he was going on a mission to exclude her son. 
But her strength and her capacity that she had built over the years, her knowledge and her ability to separate the emotional um, aspects of advocating for your own child allowed her to live through that really terrible time and, and, and he maintained his enrolment at that school right through to the end of his schooling. So what a wonderful achievement. She will tell us about that. We then go on to talk more generally about Queensland in particular. So I'm, I'm sure Queensland listeners will find this particularly interesting. The disconnect between the inclusive education policy and the zero tolerance policy in Queensland gets a great unpacking. (laughs) So anyway, I won't keep talking. I'll let you all listen to this uh, long but very, very useful and helpful interview for anyone who is embarking on. If you're starting out and you have a child with a disability and you're seeing the behaviour charts and you're seeing the the exclusion starting to happen, this is the episode for you. You will find some strength from that. I I am sure you will. Okay, enjoy this episode. Thank you, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa Bridal. Hello, Lou. Nice to be here. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for being here. Hello. Lisa, we're going to get started. It's a cold and chilly uh, morning here, isn't it, on Friday uh, morning in Australian winter. We're not used to this cold. So let's get on with this and warm ourselves up with our icebreaker questions. Um, I've got the first one for you is, what's your favourite animal, Lisa? And why is that your favourite animal? Uh, So look, I better say it's a dog because I'm being kind of supervised on this podcast by our uh, two-year-old bull Arab cross, um, Castro. And I guess the reason that dogs are my favourite is because I think they're geniuses in relationship. Uh, So in terms of actually being able to tune into um, emotions and being, you know, really great, a great companion and, uh, yeah, particularly in tough times. They really are. And we so many people bought dogs during COVID, didn't they, as a companion animal? Yeah, that was, was definitely a COVID puppy. <laughs> yeah, yes. it was. Oh, of course, you said he's two years old. Of yeah. course, that makes sense now. And so what was the breed again that you said? Uh, it's a bull arrow cross. It was supposed to be some other sm- much smaller breed, but, you know, that's the way the, the, the way life oh, turns out. Oh, you might have to send me a photo or something. Show me what he looks like because I don't I know. Will. I can't imagine. I'll have a look. <laughs> um, and I have another question for you that, you know, a lot of people struggle with this one. So absolutely fine with whatever you say. Um, but I just was wondering if you could help me out with, is there one thing that you could change in this world, Lisa? And if you can narrow it down to one thing, what would that be? And why would you choose that? Oh, so hard to narrow it down to one thing. Um, I I guess since I was a young woman, I've been really very interested in how we can create a more peaceful world, you know, so really um, end war and um, end the investment in war. So, you know, the production of weapons and, you know, the waging of war in other countries. And more recently, I've been very involved um, in refugee activism here in Australia. So I think something around, I, I, I just think that every, for every child to grow up in um, peace and to 
without fear and to have you know security and not to have to leave your homeland and um, yeah have that experience of of not having a safe place to live would be I guess what I would want to change um, in the world and I think there's a lot that our country can do to actually respond better to the to those people who have needed to flee for safety. A hundred percent it's um yeah it that kind of thought process goes across all sorts of different settings in life, doesn't it? And different experiences. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, and so now I'm going to ask you a little bit more about you. So can you tell us a little bit about your life growing up and how you found yourself doing what you're doing today and what we're going to talk about? And what is the connection that you have to the concept of this whole podcast, which is the square peg fitting into the round hole? So, look, I grew up in um, rural Queensland and uh, kind of a, a town of about 10,000 people. And I guess for me, um, I was a really good fit for the school system and the school system was a good fit for me. So I was like an academic high achiever and, um, you know, all of my memories of school are really of it being you know a successful and happy place um, for me I was a bit of a non-conformist but I think I was protected from because I was you know an otherwise achieving kind of student Um, so I went to university and studied social work always had an interest in I guess a recognition really that my um, life was privileged and that not everyone had that had that degree of privilege um, had a strong interest in community development and, as I talked about before, in peace activism. And uh, then, then my second child was born with Down syndrome 27 and a half years ago. And I guess that was the moment I realised that, this, you know, maybe the world and school wouldn't be as comfortable a place for him. So I do remember my mother-in-law at the time Um, So, yeah, my late mother-in-law, the day Sean was born, he was only two hours old, he was still in the ICU and she would call the Down Syndrome Association and said, came up to the hospital and said, don't worry, I found out he can go to a regular school. And I thought, well, she's really thinking way further ahead than, than I am. But I guess that planted a seed for me. And I was also very fortunate that I... Um, had a parent from the Down Syndrome Association visit us about two months later when Sean was finally out of hospital and she was very involved in advocacy for inclusive education and her son was just Mm. getting ready to start school and I just looked at Anne and I thought, you seem to have it all together, your son seems to be doing all the things that I'd hoped for my child before that diagnosis crept in and uh, yeah, I just I just joined all the disability advocacy groups that I could hit, heard about and started to really clarify um, my ideas around inclusion. And I guess the idea that actually my son was perfect, that's not how I felt when he was first born, um, but it was really about relearning ideas about disability um, and actually saying, actually, he didn't need to be changed, but the world did need to be changed for him to um, find his place. I love hearing people talk about, articulate the whole concept of the square peg and the round hole. 
It's the social model of disability is what you're talking about, isn't it? Changing the environment rather than changing the, the child themselves. And, um, and that yeah, really was an unlearning. I think, you know, that sort yeah. of thing that is so much not, it um, certainly wasn't my thought process prior to, um, to having Sean. Um, it was yeah. really the idea. And I guess even the early years were about still very mixed ideas about, needing to get him in the early intervention path to kind of fix him or to yep. make him ready for the world. Um, and once I un unlearned that, um, the rest of life has been really easy. Yep, me too. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's definitely one of the major mind shifts that helps us to focus on what we now know is the right way to go and that guides us, doesn't it, as we it really keep going. Does. That's wonderful. What a wonderful story. Now, I didn't know that and I don't actually still know that much about you, but um, we're going to keep exploring. So, Lisa, can we talk a little bit about your own lived experience with your own child attending school in Queensland and what that was like for you? So we were really clear that we wanted Sean to be included in his local school we had an older daughter who was, you know, two years older, so we really determined that we were just going to take, um, make the same school decisions for Sean, that he was going to go to the same preschool and the same school as his older sister. Um, and that was mostly pretty straightforward. We did have an issue in preschool where it was thought that he should just go one hour a week, um, not the 20 hours a week that other kids um, went. Um, but the local primary school was very welcoming and I would say there was always a little bit of a gap between what I thought inclusion should look like and what it was for Sean. So there was a little bit, certainly too much time that he spent with, you know, teacher aides and um, a little bit of time where we had to, um, you know, fight for him to be included in the class and not doing something kind of separate, but he was in a very welcoming, nurturing environment that had some high expectations about his learning. Um, but when we went to high school, I guess that was when it became really tough. Um, so um, Sean had a change of school in year eight and then in year nine and 10, um, he was really struggling in the school. So I guess what we came up against very strongly was, um, I guess, a mindset that inclusion isn't about the school doing anything differently. It's about the child fitting into um, what the school already offers. And so when Sean was challenging what the school was offering, um, and often that was through behaviour, um, you know, telling people that this wasn't working for him, the that whole kind of kick them out mentality came in. And so that really manifested in the school principal eventually coming to us and saying um, that it didn't really matter what we determined in terms of Sean staying at that school, that he was just going to suspend Sean for longer and longer periods until we would have no choice but to leave the school. And that was um, 
actually a very um, helpful thing in the end because once we had that, I was able to write a very strongly worded letter back to the school to say, um, you know, that that would be a form of disability discrimination that um, is in breach of um, legal obligations. And that didn't happen, but it did, um, that wasn't the end of the story. So we then had a quite, quite a lot of payback from that school principal where he sent me a bill for Sean's support costs, um, support that we had never um, requested. And he, we were certainly, there was a campaign really to drive us from the school. So I think that's one of the things that we, I currently in my work support lots of families who are dealing with suspensions and exclusions from school. And one of the things I think it's really that parents do recognise, um, as I did, was that this isn't about um, a reasonable response to behaviour that the school finds challenging or um, problematic. This is actually a campaign to get rid of schools from um, mainstream settings. And it's definitely underpinned by ideas that there are special places for um, people with disability and there's, um, you know, a strong belief in that segregation um, is the proper, is the proper route for people with disability. But, you know, families are not paranoid to think um, actually that their kids are being pushed elsewhere. Um, and so I think it's really important to recognise when there's all of the alarmist talk about um, school discipline or the lack thereof um, and the need for you know, principals to have strong powers to exclude dangerous kids, that what we're talking about for, for kids with disability is really the licence to discriminate. Mm. There's a real disconnect, isn't there, between the public understanding of or the, the, the message that is about violent kids versus special places for special kids. I'm doing inverted commas, obviously. They're very different things and yet they get lumped together all the time, don't they? They do. Can I just clarify with you, with that experience, you mentioned two things that I thought, well, the first one was um, the, the principal actually stating to you that that was going to be his mission to uh, exclude your child permanently. Where, where did he, first of all, was that in writing to you? No, but it wasn't a meeting with a lot of witnesses. So there were about nine people. It was one of those meetings where the parents get called to, um, and it was at the end of the meeting where he was actually, could tell he was feeling pretty frustrated that um, they had tried to, they had tried a couple of different things. They said to us that the teachers feel that they're babysitting our child He's a menace. Um, he's, um, you know, really basically worn out his welcome with the staff. Um, that he's not learning. He's not developing. Um, he's not meeting the school expectations, and that he also didn't have a single friend at the school. So they they try to, <laughs> and so it was one of those meetings. Some of your listeners will recognise this. Where oh yeah, there's a there's a cast of thousands, and all of them have a particular role to demoralise the parent um, and sometimes the student. 
and to and, and you know it's very clear that the purpose of that meeting was not to talk about how Sean could be better supported at the school or how inclusion could work for him. It was a mission. The purpose of that meeting was to um, demoralise us enough so that we would leave the school. And because I was expecting that kind of a conversation at that point, um, I was very prepared. And even though there were hurtful things that were said, I was had already really pretty much determined we were not going to... Um, back down from that, you know, Sean's right along. Okay. Well, then, and that leads to my second question is, this is a key thing. You are an educated person. You work in this area. You were able to remove, to separate your emotions, which is very, very hard for lots of people to do and what needed to happen. So um, my question is, I've got two questions that come from that. One, how do we help people to do that? And secondly, um, what was the outcome of that? How did you turn it around from something so adversarial to something I assume positive in in that he was included at the school in the long term? Because that's really what people want to know, I think. Oh, look, I don't. I don't know how, uh, in terms of your first question, I'm not sure. I think what I know is that there is strength in numbers. So even though we weren't, we were alone at that school, I had a whole big kind of support network of people who were very reinforcing um, in in um, sense of Sean's right to be included in in terms of, um, you know, that we weren't doing something that was disadvantaging him. So I was really aware of the evidence in favour of inclusive education. Mm. We had worked at that school so that um, I knew that there were kids who liked Sean and so mm. I wasn't really going to be um, dismissed in the, by that sense that, you know, he doesn't have a single friend at the school kind of, I, I knew that he was learning. We had good relationships with school teachers. So I knew even if there are a minority of teachers who, you know, were frustrated with him, they weren't the majority of people we were dealing with. So I guess I embedded myself in that school community enough to be able to um, withstand some of that. But I also had a really strong support network um, outside. And I guess I've been the beneficiary of lots and lots of years of being immersed in disability advocacy. So mm. I wouldn't say I have always been, you know, the most skilled or the haven't made lots of mistakes, but I just, so I, yeah, I, I think one of my messages to parents is keep learning, keep connecting, um, because you never know when you're going to have to bring out your really, not your big guns, but, you know, really withstand quite a lot um, yeah, it's actually when you stand really committed beside someone who's devalued um, in our society. Sometime, at some point, you're going to have to stand up to authority that feels really, really intimidating, and it helps to have just had years and years of um, practice and a good support network. 
Um, and, and I guess, <laughs> I don't know, the other question um, before I forget is I think, um, so what I, I guess it was building on that, that I already had that community, I already had. So I was doing touch shop, I was doing, um, you know, in contact with all of Sean's teachers and I thought, it was really hard actually to go, keep going back into that school physically and feel like you're, you were as a parent unwelcome. Um, your, your child was unwelcome by at least the school leadership and that you as a parent who wasn't going away was also unwelcome. So it did take a thick skin, um, but I had really already been working on those school relationships with with teachers and the, you know the um, support staff, and so I just really thought, okay, I'm not going to convince this principal that this is the place for Sean, but I'm really going to work on those other relationships, and and we really worked then on Sean's friendships, and we worked on his participation in extracurricular and the life of the school, and him being a contributor to the school. Um, so we didn't pay that bill that came for his support costs and I um, it was interesting the principal in the end I, I met with him I, I said I'd like to meet with him to discuss why we wouldn't and he said oh well I'm, I don't think I'm going to convince you of anything I don't want to meet so we'll just forget about that so he really oh. backed down completely okay um, he still um, years later I had received uh, I sent him a photo of Sean's 21st um, saying, saying, here is here, Sean with the 30 plus kids at his 21st um, after you said he didn't have a single friend. Um, so I just want to say, um, you know, we're really grateful for the opportunity to have been at that school because it's, you know, and his connections with these, um, these boys. And he sent me a quite a nasty um, letter back saying, um, that I was far from a cooperative parent, um, that I have basically that I'd made all of this up in my own mind and that I was far too um, uh, committed to my career um, to have been a cooperative parent. And he, he cited that we refused their transition plan. And I thought, what was their transition plan? Oh, that's right, it was to leave the school. And I went, yep, I did resist that. And that I refused to pick up my son um, wet during those times where he was being, you know, suspended or yeah, kind of, you know. So I thought, I, yeah. I actually think I, I pretty much did pick my son up every single time, except perhaps when I was, you know, presenting a workshop somewhere and, and couldn't get to the school or had some, you know, was not genuinely not available. But I thought, um, yeah. So yeah. I think we, we didn't convince that principal um, one of the funny things was my Sean, Sean um, my son, remained really loved that school principal and he um, insisted every year that we give him like a present um, and kind of <laughs> and a card as we did to everyone else in the school. Um, and, you know, like I, I, we had a relationship where you would, you know, acknowledge each other's, you know, presence, but really... Um, probably for the last 18 months, I certainly didn't seek out too much, um, you know, uh, too much conversation. So 
I think, um, but, you know, we had a lovely relationship really with many other people in the school and I'm deeply grateful to all of those people who were good allies to us in that in that experience. So, um, you know, it's sometimes I think families think, I don't want to go somewhere where I'm not welcome. And I get that, um, but sometimes we also need to, um, you know, I guess, particularly where there's been already for us, you know, that there, we had invested in that school, we had those relationships with some of the kids. It would We would have given up a lot to leave that school um, so I know I know families need to make decisions you know based on their own capacity their students well-being and but we I was really pleased that we were able to um, you know stick that out for all that Sean gained from that particular school experience. Mm, I mean I guess it's a personal decision isn't it but um, I was very interested to hear how you turned it around and and how you managed to keep him there. Geez, you have got a thick skin, but I just hope people listening can um, can get something from that. That's really, really practical and such a um, unique experience. You know, it's not always the case that people can turn things around that that way. So well done to you and thank you for sharing that with us. I think that will really help I know there's people I'm thinking of right now, I'm sure they know I'm thinking of them too, who needed to hear that. So thank you very much for that, Lisa. Thank you. And obviously I wish that that should never be the case. That should never be the experience for any no, child. Of course. Every, every, um, any parent. Um, we shouldn't have to be um, that strong, right? Um, no, of course not. I, no. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's actually, yeah discriminatory and illegal um what what happened to happen to us um yes um but I, I share it because i know it's also not an uncommon experience yeah. it's not at all uncommon and the more we share it with each other talk about it and the more we do what you did the less likely it is it's that it's going to continue and um i mean again referring to the disability royal commission last week had a hearing their third hearing on education and all of these issues came up again so let's hope that things like that a royal commission will make recommendations to to change this alongside parents like yourself and hopefully me too um, advocating for change <laughs> absolutely I do know that you work towards supporting families to achieve inclusion in your job as well so can you please tell us a little bit more about that work that you do? What's a day in the life of Lisa Bridal? Mm. Uh, <laughs> it's a bit varied. Uh, so I guess, uh, so I've been working where I work now at Community Resource Unit for 12 years, supporting families um, to pursue an inclusive education and inclusion in all areas of life. Um, so I was working in family leadership development um, for the first you know, eight years of that, um, of that work. And the last three years we've been funded by the Queensland Department of Education to help families develop their advocacy skills. And we have a little framework which is around families being clear, informed, confident and connected. And so the clear is um, clear about a vision for inclusion, clear about the strengths and gifts of their child, 
clear about what inclusion is and isn't. Um, and then informed is around policy and legislation. Um, uh, the competent is having skills in advocacy and the connected is really being um, networked with other families to achieve um, inclusive education. So, you know, on a daily basis, getting back to your question, what that looks like is, um, you know, we'll be, our team will be out kind of running workshops for families, either face-to-face -face or online, kind of looking at all those elements. Um, we'll be developing resources, so maybe resources on um, how your child can access the same curriculum as their peers, or about how they can deepen their friendships in the school. We will be taking phone calls from families, um, and that's probably the heartbreaking kind of part of my day, is kind of listening to some of the stories of exclusion that still persist. Um, and then we will also be, we, we have a little project where we're um, working with harder to reach families, so families from culturally and linguistically diverse families or First Nations families. And um, a really joyful part of our work is, help, is the peer support development. So we run training events for um, peer support contacts across Queensland and help them, I guess, to be leaders and connectors in their local community. So this, these families um, run coffee mornings or they're just a support. They're, they're a supportive voice for inclusion in their, in their local community. Geez, that's fantastic. And how similar to family advocacy who I, I now work for as well. So I just heard it, so much of what you were saying, even the language of family leadership, which is very much a part of um, the sort of capacity building piece that we do at Family Advocacy as well. It's wonderful. I hope so there is a network, I guess, across, yeah. across Australia. Yes, there's there a network of organisations and I think that is really key because this work is big work. It's um, work that will take several generations, I think, actually to achieve. So it's very important to have those alliances, um, you know, at that local level and, and also kind of nationally and even internationally, I think. So, mm, absolutely. Um, yeah. So I think we probably have very similar kind of frameworks that we'd come back to around, you know, families having a vision, that focus yes. on gifts and yeah. strengths, the, the natural authority of families and really, um, yeah, I guess very strong core beliefs in that it's absolutely the child's human right to um, be included and belong and participate like any other citizen of our country. Mm, absolutely, yeah, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to hear there's more because I'm so focused on New South Wales all the time. So let's talk a little bit more. This will be so good for our Queensland listeners. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the lay of the land for neurodivergent children and uh, school students in Queensland? What are the positive aspects of the Queensland system for education and employment for people with disabilities? And what are the challenges that the community face in Queensland? Wow, what a, what a question. Um, no, it's huge, but, you know, if you can give us, give us a framework yeah. or a, kind of a, 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 um, a focus of yeah. what's happening. Yeah. So, look, I, I think to answer that, I'd have to say, like, it's the, the best of times and the worst of times. So, I mean, the best is really that I think there's amazing um, people 
who are working well together for change. And I think that includes, um, you know, students and, and parent advocates. So we have a parent advocacy group here called the Queensland Collective for Inclusive Education. We've got other funded advocacy groups. Um, we've got amazing um, academics, um, you know, the Queensland Centre for Inclusive Education and others in other universities. Um, we've got amazing, you know, we've got a disability and inclusion branch within the Department of Education and, you know, really some really good people working in, you know, regional offices. So I really do want to say there's been some um, great investment um, by the Queensland Government towards, towards change. People know we've got this a, a policy that's based on the UN Convention on the Rights of People with mm -hmm. Disability. Um, and so all of those are incredible kind of assets, I guess. And I think another thing that we have here in Queensland is that we're the beneficiary of decades of really sustained parent advocacy. So we've got lots of examples of people in their 40s who were, you know, included through the school system. And so I think that mm -hmm. can tell us what is possible. Um, and, and, and sometimes then it's a, a challenge to think, well, why is that not the daily, why isn't inclusion the daily reality? So I guess um, I talked about the heartbreaking nature of some of the individual consultations which we do at CRU. And I guess we're, um, maybe traumatised is too strong a word, maybe not, but hearing, you know, families of, you know, four-year-olds who are still being encouraged into segregated education, hearing, um, you know, families whose kids are only at school one to two hours a day, not just for a week, but for the whole school year. Um, families being told constantly there are not sufficient resources for their child to be at school for longer or for their child to attend a camp or um, or even participate in a swimming lesson at school. So uh, a very high rates of um, suspension and exclusion. And just really, I guess, families who feel like they've got no other choice but to remove their child from the regular school to, to safeguard that child's well-being, you know. So really, I think that's, um, yeah, that that's I guess yeah. the, the hard, hard, very hard story to hear. So the plane overhead there. Um, I think uh, I guess you know because I have been you know involved in this space for 25 years now. I guess what I do mm. see, I think it's really important to identify what has changed. So I think that the mm. policy, even though it's not completely doing the work it was intended to do, we do see that the child has the right to um, enrol in their in the local school. You know, families ha can make that choice and that choice should be supported. And I guess when my son was going to school, we had a, a placement policy, which was really that there would be a recommendation of what where your school would go and if you chose not to follow that recommendation there were consequences in terms of the support that could be available for that for that student so um so it's not sufficient the policy isn't sufficient but that is something that has changed 
I think the other thing that is really that I see more strongly with younger families is like a higher expectations of what their child should be learning. So mm. certainly I think I felt that I was often having to choose from Sean being there um, for his academic learning. Now, I know many families still feel that if they, uh, it's, they don't feel very powerful in the school system to insist on that, but I think I do see um, with the Australian curriculum and a lot more kind of conversations around um, how universal design for learning, for example, I think families are getting the message that high quality academic learning is not only possible, but expected in the regular school system. Well, that actually sounds quite hopeful. <laughs> well, I think, I think that's, I think that's good. I mean, I think the other, um, you know, of course, one of the things that hasn't changed over time is that it's still, there's still an incredible power imbalance, right, between the student and the family and and the school system. So really it is often about the the strength of the you know individual family to keep persisting, to keep challenging. Um, and yeah. and that makes it a very that doesn't make it a, a school system that that fits all students, right? No, that's right. And it makes it feel very unfair that there's such an imbalance of power. And um, you mentioned the inclusive education policy. I'll make sure that I um, share some sort of link to that so people can be aware of that because it sounds as though that can help dr drive um, positive outcomes for families if they kind of refer to that and use that to, to, as it's, I guess, intended to support them to, to get in more inclusion. I think one of the things you also asked about is the kind of the broader landscape for people with disability. And I guess what I would say is that I'm not sure that we have really, uh, what is that? I, I don't know that we've made a lot of progress, for example, in the area of employment. That seems to be something that we actually believe at Crew has gone backwards in some ways over a couple of decades. and. And we're not seeing really the, you know, even for all of the um, sins of the NDIS, um, I think that goal around an investment in social and economic participation, um, we're really not seeing um, the fruits of that. So I, I guess I, I really strongly believe, you know, our biggest challenge is really that mindset of, um, you know, special places for special people and, I guess a view, a world view of people with disability as kind of recipients of special services or clients and consumers and participants, not as people um, and citizens, you know. So really, um, whether it's in school or outside of school, that is really the big, you know, the big challenge that we're, we're facing is how do we um, uproot and, you know, disturb those very strong mindsets that are limiting the lives of Yep. Well, and that's why we have a Disability Royal Commission, isn't it, to investigate what's behind all of that and how, make some recommendations to the government to, to really 
gain some ground at changing that and dealing with those problems. And I think we're going to need to kind of look at the fact that there are, of course, vested interests that are kind of propping up that, um, you know, that status quo. Further segregating. Yes, exactly. There's some profits being made, sadly. Anyway, back to education. That's a very good point, though. We, we, I'm glad we've made that. Um, as you know, 70 to 80% of students suspended from New South Wales have a disability, from New South Wales schools have a disability. Do you think the figures would be the same in Queensland? You've discussed some informal exclusions. Um, do you know if the figures are the same in Queensland for formal suspension? So there's actually a, a little bit of a campaign underway in Queensland um, and it's being led by Queensland Advocacy and um, by the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Community Legal Service. Um, a number of other organisations are supporting that campaign, which is being, has gone um, seeking really a public inquiry on this issue. So what we know is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students and students with disability, students in out-of-home care are the most excluded. Um, so we know, um, but it's very hard to get figures. The way the figures are um, reported um, is kind of patchy. And so um, QAI um, and the, the legal service have um, undertaken um, right to information requests to try and get a better picture of that. Um, so we, we, we do know that, you know, the rates are at least two or three times what the rates for other students. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, really a scandalous, scandalously disproportionate kind of um, experience, even before we account for the fact that you know, for students with disability and those Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, there's a lot of, yeah, informal mm. suspensions. So the fam I know that families um, listening to this podcast will be aware of that scenario of, you know, the call from the school to say, oh, you probably want to, you know, pick your child up because they're not having a good day and we don't want anything to happen. We don't want that going on their record. Um, and so, and uh, similarly, like, yeah, students encouraged not to attend or students attending very part-time. So I think the figures, if you looked at it for the number of hours that a student attends and the rates of suspension and exclusion, it would be even even more scandalous, really. Yes, yes. And I know that, um, I assume that's what you were alluding to, that the Queensland Centre for Inclusive Education at QUT um, they just recently done some really great research, haven't they, about specifically the Aboriginal uh, students and their ex experiences with exclusion. So I hope that that information leads to some uh, good outcomes. So my next question is, if you were to prioritise or describe what needs to happen next in order to provide access to learning for all students, what would you say? What next? <laughs> so I think um, a number of years ago, probably at least at least I would say 15 years ago, um, a parent who was also a Queensland senator, um, Senator Sue Boyce, um, had a, had a little symposium that was, and the question that she posed around inclusive education was, is um, 
is it the skill or the will or what's in the till? Um, and so I guess I was been thinking about that and thinking that of course we need skills teachers. So we need, um, I think really to share the examples of what works and we need, you know, teachers to be, you know, well supported. I really think more from that, um, a model of teaching to all students in a class rather than the current thing where you teach to the, you know, you teach to the middle and then the kids on the end get taken off for either extension or for, um, you know, to work with the teacher aid either outside the room or in the unit or whatever. Um, and so I think, um, and I guess the other thing in terms of um, for teachers is I think removing kind of a level of bureaucracy in their task and letting them really focus on the teaching and the relationship aspect of their work would would really make a difference. Mm. But I think, um, you know, in terms of what's in the till, we need to think about how would we actually redirect resources. So. Um, one of the heartbreaking things is when you hear families who say, you know, the schools told me they can't, you know, accommodate my kind of student for more than two hours a day. And you see our Queensland Minister um, announcing the opening of a $33 million special school. Um, you think there are plenty of resources in our system. We just need to direct those towards um, inclusion. So. Um, I really, I feel really very, very strongly that, um, you know, unless we tackle um, this idea that there are special places for some kids, we are, we're not going to have the will to include all. I think the minute things get tough, um, then the idea that those students who are difficult should be somewhere else is very, um, is very strong. And so, um, and that really would require our school system to tackle um, this idea that parents are choosing um, special. And so I would, you know, we talk to families all the time who are feeling the pressure of no choice, really. No, you know, not, not, a cho not an enviable choice about where their child would be. So the choice is sometimes of, you know, sending your child to the local school where they're not receiving the adjustments that they need, where they're not receiving a high quality education, where their well-being is suffering, um, going to a segregated environment where they're you know, effectively cut off from their community, but they, you know, <laughs> for both parent and 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 child, they're not, perhaps not needing to work as hard to to be there for the day, or kind of families giving up their own livelihood to educate their students um, at home. So, so in terms of the resources, I just want to say really strongly that um, this is about, you know, redirecting those resources. Um, but, but I think the working at the will um, is for me very tied up with that um, redirection of resources, because I think all the kids need to be there before we can start designing an education system which is kind to everyone, where people don't have to be different from who they are to, you know, find a sense of belonging um, and achievement. So, um, and I think finally, I guess 
what I would like to see is a change to those power differentials. So I think currently, if you read the, the, the newspapers, and I try not to have <laughs> too much sometimes, um, but you hear lots of things around, you know, I guess, you know, even assaults on teachers from, from students and from parents about, you know, bad behaviour of parents and the need to, you know, ban parents from schools and things like that. And I think that has happened after a whole lot of other escalation of people feeling, un, you know, not heard. Not in all cases, but I guess I, I guess my bread and butter is listening to families who tell me just how um, powerless they feel, how many efforts um, they have made to um, have their perspective heard, have their child's perspective mm. kind of listened to. So really, there needs to be something around um, renegotiating that relationship those relationships in schools between you know the, the school principal who is has pretty unchecked power actually I think in our Queensland education system certainly it they're not really held to account when they don't follow their own kind of policies in terms of inclusion and uh, the, the families who really are in many cases you know they're coming to our workshops they're learning kind of the most diplomatic ways to raise their concerns with the school and they're still feeling um, dismissed and unheard. So mm -hmm. it, I guess I think getting the, the will to include right means kind of tackling things like the uh, medical model of disability and it means mm -hmm. tackling the idea that um, you know, segregation is the answer when people don't mm -hmm. seem to easily fit. Um, but it also means tackling um, the nature of those power relationships that exist at the school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like that. The skill, the will and the till and the interaction between those three things. Um, so important and a very good way of um, helping us all to think about all these, inter these intersections of these different issues. And now a question about the person who needs to kind of get um, a clear understanding of the skill, the will and the till, the Education Minister, Grace Grace, in uh, Queensland. My question to you, Lisa, is if you could spend one day in Grace Grace's job as the Minister for Education, what would you do in that day? Um, I'm probably going to give a very facetious answer. So the first thing I would do, maybe I'd apologise to all those parents who've been heartbroken by the um, social media posts that are kind of pro-segregation. I think it would be good to kind of, um, you know, acknowledge that how how painful that has been for families to hear of um, this new segregated place that's going to be the answer to um, you know, all of the exclusion that they've um, they've experienced. I'd certainly want to be, um, you know, tearing up any of those kind of contracts for new investment in um, segregation. Um, I would like to crash the one school system. So are you aware of what one school is? Um, it's, a, it's, I guess, where schools get to write really defamatory comments about... <laughs> students um, about kind of every particular 
behavioral incident or whatever and it's where um basically yes a lot of things get recorded about a student that then stays on their kind of record gets passed on to other schools um and i think it's deeply um deeply problematic so um so they're the kind of facetious kind of answers but i think really what i would like to see the minister do and what i would want to do as as minister is lead a conversation about you know what would it take for every child to be you know truly welcomed as they are in their local schools and mm. and you know how can we get back to schools being places where you know the child is at the center you know where the needs of students are are real and their well-being is a real priority and you know what would we need to strip away to enable that to happen so i guess i'm thinking this is not the idea of kind of more work for schools or more work for teachers but you know what what can be let go so that is actually um you know going to be possible so i would really like and this is you know we haven't had um you know an education minister in queensland who has led that discussion about why inclusion is better why it is a foundation for um, inclusion in the whole of life. So I think we really need, I'd be wanting to say as education minister that, you know, if we want inclusive communities in the long term, there is no other place to start but in, in childhood. So it, it is just illogical to think we're going to get inclusive, cohesive, just communities for people with disability if we keep separating them off away from their community from a young age. So yes, the conversation I'd want to be, you know, having is about, you know, we're not talking about a one size fits all kind of school system. We're talking about a new school system, which is um, welcoming, nurturing everyone's valued um, as they are. Yep. Yep. And it helps everybody. And that's a wonderful, wonderful answer that leads to my next question. Uh, I'm going to reword this as I say it to you because you've already alluded to the inclusive education policy. I've said it was a statement, but I I'm glad you've explained a bit of that. So it's my understanding that in Queensland there is an inclusive education policy from the Department of Education, but it sits alongside a very clear zero tolerance policy for behaviour and the country's highest school suspension and exclusion statistics um, is what's been indicated anyway. Is that the world's biggest conflict of interest? Let's explore this conflict between an inclusive education policy and this, this obvious zero tolerance exclusions that are happening in Queensland how do we how do we kind of live with that what what's going to happen to do with that tell us about it so it's yeah so I guess as I said before we've got this um you know this policy which is based on the UNCRPD and general comment number four it's very um helpfully points out it's got a very you know strong definition of what inclusion is and how it is how inclusion is distinct from practices of segregation and exclusion and integration. Um, and then I guess we have yet this 
this whole other framework around um, behaviour and what is called safe, supported and disciplined learning environments. Um, so that historically, there's been a couple of things that have happened. So um, under the previous LNP um, government, um, under Campbell and Human, there was a review of the Education Act around um, suspensions and exclusions and more power was given to um, principals and certainly um, some changes were made in terms of what was a short-term or a long-term exclusion. And, uh, and that's had a very, very detrimental impact on, on, on students. The Education Act is currently under review and that some of those time periods and appeal, appeals, etc., cetera, um, the right to appeal is part of that kind of review. Yeah. But I think substantially those power relationships haven't changed, right? So the the power of the principal to make those decisions um, hasn't been, doesn't appear to me as far as my reading to be kind of under under review at all. And that is, um, yeah, so I think that the, the, mm -hmm. the biggest challenge is that there is not accountability to that inclusive education policy. So, um, you know, even we work with families who are, you know, told they can't attend that, a particular school. And the only answer that we've got back from the department is that the, the parents should go back and, you know, still enrol at that school where they've been really very bluntly told their child is not welcome. Um, and so it's really putting the onus very much, um, you know, on the family um, to, create that change. So I'm not sure what sort of a accountability would work, you know, because we know that human beings don't, you know, whether it's the, the stick or the carrot, but certainly um, I'm very disturbed by the fact that it's still, there's a, there's a burden of advocacy on families to get the best out of the system. And for many families, that is just too tough a battle. Yep. I hear it all the time as well. Yeah, I guess I just want to say as well, I think that we have very messed up ideas about why there is behaviour, what gets labelled behaviour in school, right? So if we really have grafted this inclusive education policy leaves untouched all of those assumptions that behaviour is, is kind of willful disobedience. It's not about lack of adjustments. Um, it's not about, um, you know, the environment's not, you know, being suiting the child, or it's not about devaluation of the student and exclude and experiences of exclusion and that behaviour is an attempt to communicate all of those feelings about being excluded and feeling um, undervalued or, or or being expected to kind of keep up with other students um, because of it, despite this disability related need. So I think we, and with that, we've got, you know, still those ideas that, you know, behaviour requires punishment, right? Mm -hmm. Rather mm -hmm. than that 
behaviour requires understanding and the removal of environmental and other barriers. So, um, so I don't think it's actually possible to have an inclusive education system unless we tackle those old ideas and those old mindsets, which are really counterproductive because you can have any number of consequences, but if you haven't removed the barriers to learning um, for a student or uh, provided them with communication, if they're not valued in that school, yeah. they're not going to come back and um, not have those same issues happen again. Yeah. Absolutely right. There's so much we know about this now. There's so many different ways of expressing and communicating it, you know, and the one thing that we're looking at um, from our community at the moment, you may not be aware, is uh, a different model of care that is a non-behaviourist model. Um, it's called Collaborative Proactive Solutions and it's about solving the problems that lead to the behaviour. So as you've just right, very correctly said, the behaviour is the symptom of something that's not working. And while we keep looking at that as a willful act, as sadly the Queensland government are still doing, we're not going to resolve the problem. So, yeah, thank you very much for articulating it so well. I think there's something really, I mean, one of my great frustrations is, and it comes back to that question around, you know, resources, is you know, we see the simplest things denied a student, right? So maybe the family's asking for, you know, a small change in the classroom or just some flexibility around some aspect of their learning um, that's denied because, you know, we can't do that for one because otherwise everyone might want it or all of these other reasons. And then we can spend, or, you know, we don't have the resources and then when the child, you know, stuffs up, for want of a better word, we can have suddenly have, you know, stakeholder meetings with 10 professionals there. That is not a cheap thing to kind of pull off, right? Mm. Um, and, and, and so the resources are there in the system. We're just not using them to do things differently. And, and I think it's that a lot of angst gets created you know, at the school level as well. That is not a pleasant thing to be, you know, writing up the incident reports and, um, yeah, dealing with exclusions and suspensions. And actually if we just had, yep, yeah, that re relationship-based kind of approach, um, it's, it's, it's actually less work, less work, less angst and less damage to the child. Less resources needed because you're dealing with the problems before they occur. So, yeah, I know. It does just, just seem so obvious, but, you know, hopefully we'll get that message over eventually. So let's finish with some information about the organisation that you work for. Can you please tell us about the Community Resource Unit? That is the right term, isn't it? We, we've been calling it CRU, C-R-U, um, the work that you do there and can you tell us a little bit more about the organisation? I will obviously link uh, everybody to the organisation, especially the Queenslanders. So what's it about? So uh, look, Crew has been around for over 30 years and I guess we came together um, at a time of real change in the disability sector. I guess we're um, 
internationally, I guess people were talking a lot more about community living and people with disability, um, you know, taking their places, you know, valued and participating members of the community. And it was really actually a collaboration between people with disability, families, service workers and advocates that came together and said, we want a place where we can kind of keep getting inspired about kind of what is possible and we can be looking ahead to, I mean, the change that needs to be there um, in the lives of people with disabilities. So some, some recognition that, um, you know, the models that have been known in the past were segregating, there are kind of institutions and group homes and, um, you know, special, special schools and, you know, day services. And actually, if that wasn't in the, if they weren't the path to a good life for people with disability, we needed to imagine something better. So I guess Crew's role, it's, we, the, the name doesn't tell you what we do. And um, some of how, how, even how we describe ourselves can be a little, still feel a little bit mysterious. But I guess we talk about being an organisation that's interested in in change and leadership towards better lives for people with disabilities. So we try to inspire people for that vision of something better. And often that's through, you know, workshops and resources. We produce little videos and, you know, podcasts ourselves, um, you know, booklets and we sell books. And um, so resourcing people to, to think about what, what a good life in community mm -hmm. looks like. And then also really challenging ideas um, that aren't in the best interests of, of people with disabilities. So helping people develop better frameworks for understanding, you know, why, you know, why one path or one choice might be better than the, the other. And I guess um, very much around helping to resource people to lead their own change. Um, so we think that really change has mostly been the result of people with disability and families who've said enough is enough. You know, mm. what the system is offering us is not good enough, um, rather than necessarily um, expecting change to happen from, from the top down. So it's not that we don't want to, don't try and influence systems or, you know, influence government, etc. but we're really about I guess resourcing people at the grassroots to um, to lead change and and connecting those people together. As I mentioned in our inclusive ed work, we're very interested in peer support um, for inclusion. Um, and similarly, I guess a role that Crew has played has often been connecting people who care about an issue together, whether they're a person with a disability, family, um, you know, you know professional. Um, and so that they can collaborate because we think that really that that's how change is going to happen is from a, like a building a movement for change. Mm, mm. And it sounds to me from the language that you use that you follow a social role valorisation um, guidance like we do at Family Advocacy. Have you done that course and the, or the courses? Or? Sure, sure. So, yes, I, I guess... Um, and I just want to say probably as well, I, uh, so SRV, Social Role Valorisation, has definitely been a framework that crew uses. It's a framework yeah. that as a family that we've used around, you know, so my son's now 27 
um, and we have had the real um, advantage of him being a beneficiary of all of these ideas. And so I was that parent who went along to all these little workshops and learned about, <laughs> learned about inclusive education and learned about how to foster friendships and belonging, learned about how my son could um, participate in regular community things and have a job, have a home of his own. And so, um, and so that whole idea of him being in valued roles as an employee and as a, you know, a soccer club member or soccer player and as a, you know, housemate now and, you know, are, are yep. very, very central to, to crew, but also for me central to how I've um, helped to, to help Sean have the most, you know, inclusive mm -hmm. and adventurous life that he can, he can have. I'm so glad he does. That sounds fabulous. <laughs> good on, good on you all. Yeah, I think that's one thing I would like to say to to your to your listeners is I know that it's it's damn tough that it's not um, it's not easy. And I guess the really the reason that I persisted is because I really did believe that I was making an investment in the community I wanted to see for him in the long term. Um, and I really did also see um, that it was his, his absolute right to be to belong and and to be there and to see the way that others were changed by knowing Sean. So um, Sean's been really has friends that he met in kindy and he has really close friends from grade one. And you know, last weekend he went to a, a 21st, oh, sorry, a, a um, engagement party. Um, oh. with one of the boys that he went to school with. And and so he, for him to have had that chance to make kind of lifelong friends is really, really um, important. And it was through organisations like Crew and like Family Advocacy. I went to some of their conferences um, yeah. when, uh, when Sean was much younger and being inspired about what is possible and actually getting... Uh, I guess I think you all always need the redose of that. Like you get the inspiration, but you actually to stay kind of stubbornly persisting, you actually need to keep getting that <laughs> that inspiration topped up because you know it's isolating. You go back and you face all of these these barriers, and it's it's not as easy as just being inspired, right? You actually do need yeah. the frameworks, and you need the support of the support of others to stay to stay the course yep yep and you can't band-aid your way through it you have to it has to guide you deeply inside and yeah be a long time and I, and I and I think it's not as well you know like I guess I'm not saying um it should should be up to individual families like I think one of the other things yeah. that's been a really important thing of families coming together is actually that collective voice for change so um, it's about saying, you know, because um, it, it can feel like it's just your individual battle, but actually this is not something that is just happen happening to your family. It's happening to lots of other um, kids and families. And so um, being connected to other people and having that collective voice is super important. I think that's helped me so much and our family so much is meeting all the other people that are going through the same thing as us. Yeah, it's it's very um, heartwarming and, and encouraging. 
So just to finish off, we just started talking about this as we have through this whole interview. I, I always ask people about their mentors and books and influences. We just talked about SRV, social role valorization. Do you have any recommendations for listeners about any books or other influences that guide you? Sure. Um, so the one that comes to mind, and it's because um, he has a line around exactly this topic, so uh, is Norman Kuntz, who he's a Canadian um, disability activist, and he writes with his um, his long-term partner and wife Emma Vanderclift, who's also um, an autistic um, adult, and uh, they've got a, a website called um, Broad Breach Training Resources. Or yep, and he's he's got a couple of really amazing publications. He's got a book called um, Being Realistic Isn't Realistic. Um, and he has, there's lots of articles that are freely available on their website as well as kind of video recordings. Um, he's got one that's called The Right to be Disabled. Another one called something like um, The Stairs Didn't Go Anywhere, which is his reflection on, <coughs> on kind of early intervention. So, yeah, I don't know, many of us have been through those early interventionists, you know, people practising all their skills on on a set of fake stairs that actually don't go anywhere. And he talked about why would, you know, the, as someone with cerebral palsy, why would he get be in those kind of oh, fake wow. environments? Um, but anyway, he, ha he has a line of the reason that is, you know, young therapists like come to him all the time and say, you know, what should I do in this situation if I meet a person you know, with cerebral palsy, what should I do? So, you know, if I met a student with, you know, an autistic student, what should I do? And he said, yeah. they're asking the wrong question. Um, mm -hmm. They should be, what should I think about? So this is his challenge mm -hmm. to, to people, you know, what should I think about? And he said, mm -hmm. so my advice is always to read the, the life stories of people with disability um, and their families. So I think that's a really... Mm -hmm. Um, that would also be my advice is there's a whole pile of um, and you know, bloggers now um, and and so starting with um, Norm and Emma's kind of website is actually a really good place to be introduced to a whole pile of other um, you know writers with disability and um, yeah. How fabulous. Well, I have a whole um, resource section on my website so I'll be adding all of that on there so people can access it. Um, I'm really proud of that now, actually. It's really growing. It's like a whole library of um, all my guests' ideas that, you know, helps everybody to learn from each other. So, yeah, wonderful. Is there anything else you would like to say before we sign off, Lisa? Uh, I, I don't know. I think I just want to say, um, you know, again, I guess I have had the, the privilege of of being involved in this kind of work in this endeavor for um, you know for 25 years I think I I'm I'm probably convinced that we our work won't be finished in another 25 years because of just how just what we're up against in terms of the deeply ingrained ideas that we we have about um, disability and that can you know make can make us feel despondent but I actually think that we need to understand that any great social movement um, is something that is spans generations, right? So, mm -hmm. and I do, um, 
I guess I take encouragement by the fact that, um, you know, it, it's still, despite the fact that change sometimes feels quite incremental, um, that it's a really, um, it's a really important and wonderful movement to be part of and that certainly my life is richer, not just because of my son, but also all of the people that I've kind of worked alongside over that time, the families who we've kind of shared tears and laughter with and um, and the fruits of inclusion that are absolutely beautiful and wondrous when we see um, that investment in you know, kids growing up together, that's also a really beautiful thing and worth pursuing um, even when it's heartbreaking. Oh, what a wonderful way to finish off our chat. Your words will help help people. I know that for sure. And um, so just another um, another opportunity for you to keep going on this fabulous journey that you, you mentioned. So thank you so much for being my guest thank you for the opportunity you're very very welcome and it's a, it, it will be mutually beneficial for so many people thank you lisa it's been lovely to talk to you i'll sign us off now bye bye thank you everybody for listening bye <laughs>